This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 521 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tasha Browning. Now, Tasha is a licensed mental health counselor, a yoga teacher, and a dance teacher here in Ocala, Florida. But she has been deployed all over the country, including responding to the insurrection at the Capitol building and helping doctors and nurses through the pandemic. So we discuss a host of topics from those events, racism, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tasha Browning. Enjoy. Well, Tasha, I want to say, actually, welcome to my home. I haven't done a face-to-face recording in weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, For some reason, it's been Skype, so I actually was trying to remember how to set this up in the first place. But we were connected by Isabel. I want to say thank you to her. But I have been looking for trusted counselors, you know, culturally competent counselors in our area. I know of a whole bunch in, you know, the Miami area and all kinds of areas, but not here. So when she connected us and I heard about some of the places you've traveled to to treat our population i was amazed so firstly welcome to my home and thank you for coming on the podcast today thank you it's um very interesting to be on the other side of the mic you know because <laughs> i'm usually the one who's doing the talking so yeah, yeah. it is weird i've, I've <laughs> been a few times and yeah it's it's definitely a different mindset um so i like to start at the very beginning chronologically so tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic what your parents did how many siblings so i was actually born here in ocala so i'm a homegrown floridian if you haven't ever really met one um and uh, i came from uh, a family that um was very close-knit um my family has a property here so we kind of grew up in those extended family relations where my grandparents lived in front of us and there was uh cousins that lived there and then I had my mother and my father we lived at the other end of the property so um we very much grew up in that style of family where it you know it's not just your mom and your dad but you spend time with your uncles and your aunts and um it's sort of the idea of it takes a village to raise a child. Um, so my mother um, was in the field of nursing and my father uh, is in the field of um, contracting. He's a painter, but my father also always did a lot of advocacy work and a lot of community work. So we as a family were constantly taking part in those types of activities. Um, and uh that is probably where my niche for figuring out how to work with people um, started. 
And I thank my parents for that because I think that my parents were really good at isolating um, the different personalities of their kids and then kind of letting them explore those areas, but then also supporting those explorations. Because although we are all three very different um, individuals, they've had some success in having three girls. And um, I'm a therapist. My uh, second sister is an artist. So she uh, teaches at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And um, she does a lot of work in terms of um, advocacy and uh, talking about women's bodies and feminism. And um, she does her advocacy and her work with people through her art. And then my smallest sister, my little sister, which she's not little anymore, but we always make sure she stays in her place. <laughs> um, she uh, has a company local, uh, Natural Oats, where she makes uh, skin products. And that's been pretty uh, successful for her because she decided that she wanted to work with people um, because she got tired of the sensitive skin thing that people go through. And so she geared her entire um, company in the way that she makes products to make them organic and natural, but also for them to be able to use uh, on people and um, their pets too, um, that were just things that weren't going to cause people irritation and break them out. And that became very important to her. So I think it was those three levels of seeing like how we each wanted to um, be helpful sort of to humanity in those different ways and supporting them and giving us those experiences to kind of like put all that together and um, be successful at it beautiful mm -hmm. yeah i can relate to the oatmeal i actually you can see my leathery mitts as my mm -hmm. friends refer to them because i've had dry skin my whole life so mm -hmm. i can i can relate to the oatmeal element mm -hmm. um well with the multi-generational compound and if you refer yeah. to that i've heard a lot mm -hmm. of people say that um one piece of lamb with lots of houses um when you look through a counselor's eyes now what were some of the benefits because i think one of the the, the things that we found ourselves doing as a society is, all right, you're 18, get out, go get your own place. When you look at that financially, that makes very little sense. Actually, my, my bonus boy, my stepson's in there now, he's 20. Mm -hmm. And we told him, like, if you go to school, if you're working, don't leave yet. Leave when, when you've got a good foundation, when maybe you're, you know, with someone that's a permanent relationship and you want to spend time with them, absolutely then transition out. But we have this, you know, kind of almost like bravado of, oh, I kick my kids out 18. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. Sometimes I think it sets them up for failure. So what is what has been your experience of, of some of the pros and maybe the cons of that multi-family dwelling element that you grew up amongst? Well, I think um, definitely um, thinking about how my grandfather wanted to structure the lineage of his family. I think that having a home, you know, like a homestead, a piece of uh, land, it was always important to him because I think he always felt like um, people need a place to go where they can be safe, you know, and it doesn't matter um, how old you are or where you are in your life, you should always have a place where you can come home. Like you always need those moments of safety. And growing up in that environment with having so many different like family members around, um, I think it taught me a lot about how community can work well when people share in the tasks of life. So there wasn't really like one particular task assigned to any particular family member, whether it be male or female. I mean, we had a garden, we had um, animals, you know, we had rabbits and chickens and pigs, like it was like a little farm. Um, and then there were children around. So, um, you know, 
there was also that element of like having support in childcare, support that you can trust. Right. And so whether it was a grandmother or an, an uncle or, um, you know, my aunt or somebody, there was always somebody technically on the property um, for the children to have supervision. So when, you know, all these different um, elements of like having to find childcare and the cost of childcare and stuff like that, that's not something that was ever really part of our 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 relevance in terms of like um how you start to um think about building a family and having a family um the other thing is is that i think we got to really share in how different people do things and get things done um you know um the uh, the the ideas of like work um it's not just my work if our pigs break out it is the whole family's work to get the animals back in. If we need to harvest the garden, it is not man's work or woman's work. It is the family's work. And then um, the same thing with the the workings of like just daily household tasks too. Um, it was not like one person's work. We all lived on the property and everything requires maintenance. So it was everybody's work to contribute to however um you know, whatever was needing to be done. I think that made a big impact on how I um, think about um, the work that I do with people, because I never try to isolate certain duties to certain people or populations. It's more about um, dealing with people's strengths and weaknesses. Right. So um, I when I'm doing therapy or when I'm doing community work or when I'm doing yoga, I'm not really looking at um, what you are um um, like supposed to do. I'm looking at what you can do. Like, how are you strong? Um, where do we need to work? What are your challenges? Um, what supports do you need to, to support those challenges? Um, what kind of therapy do you need? Am I the right therapy? Because, you know, I may not be the right therapy. And so I think that, that, that whole networking of understanding how important it is, um, to, to have those different elements in, um, community, um, and strengths and weaknesses, I think definitely shaped how I even approach my life, but also how I approach the work that I do. Well, there's a few interesting things out of that. Firstly, was your granddad the one that initially established down here? Um, yes. Uh, he was, uh, from Florida. And during those days, um, like, uh, most African Americans, he migrated up north, um, for safety and uh, for work and all those things. And when he was uh, up north, of course, he always missed coming back home. He grew up in the Volusia County area where his mother and father was. And so when he finally got the opportunity um, to migrate back down south, you know, it was during the time of the Great Migration, um, he got an opportunity to to purchase some land and actually come back down to Florida. And he settled in Miami first because that was a bigger city, more population. So safety is always a thing. And, um, but it was safety, um, the, the city life was never for him. And so, um, he started looking around Florida for, um, a place where he could settle. And at that time, I know it doesn't look that way now, Marion County was still very rural. And, um, he decided that he wanted to live in horse country. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now, what are some of the worst things that he's told you about those times? Because I mean, that's, you know, obviously an element of history that we need to be very aware of but then conversely are there any any stories he told of the opposite where there was compassion and kindness and because i think one of the one of the worst lenses that we have is using the words everyone like 
everyone was racist at that time. Everyone mm. had slaves. Everyone, you know, and when you look at it, it's like even to what we're seeing at the moment, there's a section of society that thrives on greed and power and, you know, and hate. And I think there's a lot of other people that may be, may be apathetic or maybe completely opposed. Um, and so, you know, what was what were some of the stories you to- he told you of that time of of moving north, and and you know, did he did he uh, find a welcoming environment when he came back to Ocala? Were there groups of people that weren't you know as hateful as uh, that driven him away the first time? I think sometimes when we approach a topic of racism, we um, tend to look at things on a very personal level, and more so, a lot of the things that um, are dealt with um, then and now are more on systemic levels. And so some of the examples and stories, of course, that he's told me over the years, and we've sat down and, you know, before he passed away, we did a whole genealogy type of like story time and that sort of thing. Um, but in those examples, um, of, of course, he experienced like personal levels of just, um, you know, um, interactions with the KKK in Volusia County. and Because mm, that was um, a hotbed around here, wasn't it? Yeah. And Whiteville and, and all those places. Mm-hmm, and growing up um, to where, um, for a twofold reason, um, sometimes uh, in these traditional, like, country houses, um, there's big porches. And so in the summertime, you would actually, in the evening, sleep on the porch because it was cool. Um, the other part of that is that it's Florida, and um, the different ways people managed is that um, depending upon what if there was a riot or if someone was going to harass you or bomb your house or something like that, um, as kids, they it was a large front porch area and they would sleep underneath the porch for safety. Um, one, because they were already sleeping out on the porch because it was cool. But two, it was safer to sleep sort of underneath the porch and underneath the house. So there was like this whole section um, that was like hidden. Um, but um, if they needed to, they would just be in that area of um, the house um, for safety. If somebody was going to do, as my grandfather would say, like a, a ride by or a drive by um, lynching or burn a cross in your yard or something like that. But the other thing I think that really stood out to him is that um, um, one, the, the two biggest stories he talked about is how to travel um, as an African-American. I don't know if you saw that movie Green Book or Blue Book. Um, I don't know if I saw that one, no. Yeah, but even as a child, um, there was he had an old book uh, that he kept. We were cleaning out the house one day and he kept, I wish I would have kept it, but he was just cleaning stuff out and we were throwing stuff away. He showed me the book. He was like, oh, that's a book I was I was telling you about. But in these books, um, I think you can see some examples of that in the in the show Lovecraft too, um, where African Americans will put together books of safe spots so they could stop, they could eat, they could travel, they could use the bathroom, those types of things. And so um, those he showed me one of those books that he had for when he would have to travel from Florida to New York, and that was a big deal because you know we had family up north and then he had family in the south so you have to know where you can stop and rest and and do all those things um i think because of that in those days he actually was able to make a lot of friends and a lot of connections because a lot of your stopping and your traveling would be at other people's houses 
and you would stay the night or rent a room or, you know, in the book, it would say such and such will offer you a plate of food or, you know, those types of things. So he built a lot of like friends and connections along that road from traveling like that, um, that he would talk about. And then there are um, within that book, too, there's also that element of knowing which towns are your sundown towns. And unfortunately, that's still something that exists today. And in those sundown towns, those are the areas, of course, you would need to avoid um, because um, you most of the times if you are um, a, an African-American person or a person of color, um, it's not recommended that you are caught in the town after sundown. Um, and I always say, you know, um, right now, just well, those towns still exist. But a brief example of that would be some of the elements um, that were depicted in the Lovecraft series on HBO. Um, and so that was one thing that stuck with me in terms of like, because he used to like to get in his car and drive. So that was one thing that stuck with me in terms of like um, some of his stories about coming up. And the other thing was in acquiring businesses and inquiring um, land and that sort of thing, because he worked really hard to start a business and have different businesses when he was um, um, coming to Florida and when he was in New York and sold those businesses to be able to purchase the land in this area. But the thing was, is that who's going to sell you the land? Because there is this um, idea of uh, redlining and there is this idea of wanting to only sell land to African-Americans in certain areas. Um, and then some of those areas you could not find land unless there was there happened to be some generational land owned by other African-American families and they were willing to sell it to you. So um, even this little area that I live in, um, in Ocala um, on, you know, in the country um, that is that actually took place because there was one man. I don't know if he secured this land or if he purchased it after, or his family had it um, after um, the um, reconstruction period. But um, he was, he owned quite a bit of land in that area. He was African-American and um, there was a church across the street. He sold land to the church. Um, he still had a, some land that him and his wife lived on they didn't have any children so he basically sold the land in that area to different families so that people could not live just here in the west side of Ocala which is more dominantly the African-American area because that was the redlined area here in Ocala and so um, where I live that's there's still that small little element of across the street from us there's a historical black church that was built in like 1919 across the the next to the church there's another family land of a couple acres that's owned by one family that they live on and then behind us there's some more family land land um, that is some acres that three sisters live on they're all related and then um, there's our piece of land um, where it's family so I mean I guess you can see how that was important that 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 dynamic took place but you know in some ways that dynamic had to take place that way so that the land could be affordable but just in that little niche that is how that those acres became um, owned by African-Americans because of that that one individual um, selling his land. There's no other land in that area um, that was owned by him. Um, and there's no other area next to us or around us um, where there's, you know, other African-American families living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think people realize that, that, you know, there were there were areas where you couldn't buy land if you were a yeah. certain color. I actually, um, I did a kind of memorial ruck 
a few months ago with this amazing group called the Give Team, which is in the um, Paramore area of Orlando. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a youth center there and they get all the, the young kids from there and give them these really awesome positive outlets. But it was um, memorializing the Okoe massacre, which I'd never heard of before. But that was literally, you know, a a very um, integrated town at one point. And then again, a kind of, you know, KKK style element came in and basically forced all the black people out, either murdered them or, or drove them away. Yeah. Um, I had Ron Stallworth on the show, who was the the real Black Klansman, you know, the film that they made. Mm-hmm. He was the actual guy. You know, again, so in that particular area, and, and one of the head guys was a firefighter. So think about that kind of irony. And, and the, when we talk about mental health, that you're torn, that you have that hatred for black people. And at the same time, you're risking your lives for the very people that you say you're you know what I mean? So it's it's crazy hearing these stories. And like you said, it's individual. And, you know, we're getting this systemic element. But I think I think a lot of this this uprising is allowing the few truly hateful people and then applying them to a bunch of, you know, emotionally charged people that I don't think have that burning in their heart, but they're allowing themselves to get caught up with all this stuff. Because I see this division... I know, you know, most law enforcement, you know, I've worked alongside are amazing people. You know, again, as, as you said, you know, there's there's this kind of division, but most people are just good, good people. And we're being touted these these two sides. And I find it, I don't know if you, you have the same thing, but I find it nauseating that all these groups are being allowed to be portrayed in a certain way that creates this divisiveness, this division versus, you know, I don't know if you have it in your area, but I step outside for ranch we've got every color and creed living here and our kids play together so you know i hate that that is a real thing you know ron's perspective the okoye massacre all those are horrendous you know moments in uh in in our history but i feel like most people are good and most people get on these days and it's almost like they're trying to force regression of where we got to in 2021 Well, you know, I think one of the most successful elements of racism or white supremacy is tying it to fear. And that usually human beings are very susceptible to um, changing their emotions or thoughts um, and their decision making based upon fear. So anything that you can tie to fear, you can control someone. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, It could be uh, it literally could be anything. It could be anything from. Um, tying in, um, you know, stereotyping, um, different groups and immigrants like xenophobia. It could be tying in, um, stigma, you know, with people with substance abuse problems or mental health. It could be tying in, um, elements of like a, a woman's right to choose or issues with abortion. Anything that you tie into fear, um, is going to be very successful at controlling people and getting them to be unlike themselves because, um, you know, I think humanity shows us many different sides of human beings. Um, but I still believe that um, one of the stronger elements that comes out in human beings um, is their ability to love and care for each other. Um, I just think that the louder element is hate. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's who, who's given the microphone. And that's what I love. You know, you have a podcast. I have a podcast. We get to have discussions without any filters, without, you know, I mean, 
you know, anyone around the world can hit play and listen to this versus, oh, I want to go through this news channel. Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a liberal news channel, so I don't like your discussion on Fox News or whatever. Oh, yeah, we love that. And then vice versa, you know, just two human beings having a conversation. You don't hear that anymore. And I've, I've struggled to put out good content because I know how triggered, and I hate that word, um, people get. And it's like, let's talk about this pandemic pandemic let's talk about underlying health issues let's talk about the vaccine let's talk about the delta variant but in a way that you're not being lean let's just give you the information and empower you to make your own choice let's talk about the veterans and how they're dealing with this withdrawal without the politics you know without this guy's an idiot that guy's an idiot and to me all the politicians are idiots so let's just agree there i mean our system is is horrendous at you know who we put at the top i think um so Take that all out and just go to the core. And that's that's a that's an uphill battle. And you talked about mental health, the addiction epidemic and, and the war on drugs, that is an uphill struggle, you know, that I'm trying to be a voice in, especially with our law enforcement people, because they're indoctrinated to believe that addiction is crime, you know, and I think addiction addiction, not selling, not smuggling, but yeah. addiction mm-hmm. is a mental health problem, not a crime problem. It creates crime. But the root of it, the cause of it is mental health or mental ill health. Yes. And um, I, I, um, I wonder when we will start to not just listen to the people that are the loudest um, and how we make our decisions and how we form our thoughts. Um, that seems to be a big problem. You know, if you have the biggest microphone, um, if you have if you're the most charismatic um, you get the most followers, you have the most attention. Yeah. Um, and I actually, um, did a documentary. Um, and, uh, one of the things I think that came out of that, um, is that there are people working towards, uh, that stigma in terms of like substance abuse. Um, I have a, um, former student, a colleague, um, over in Melbourne, Drew Bransky, and he has formed his entire um, career in trying to help break that link between criminalizing um, substance abuse and hashing out what really is an actual problem for the individual and they're harming themselves and who is actually just people that just sell drugs because there is a difference. And um, so I do, I do think in certain it's pockets though. It's not, I wish it was all over, but I do think in certain pockets of at least I, I can only speak on Florida. I do see there starting to be different waves of just awareness in court systems when it comes to substance abuse. Unfortunately, it's not all over. And unfortunately, it's so individualized if you don't have an individual like him working towards um, those efforts and educating um, the lawyers, the the case managers, you know, the DDA and working in partnership. If you don't have a link like that in partnership between mental health and the courts and then, um, you know, the criminal justice system, it, the, the messages aren't getting across, you know, um, it's it's like I say, it's in pockets. So I've seen areas where it's starting to look a little more successful and change, um, but it's not nationwide. It the stigma is still, you know, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some amazing people, Gabo Mate, um, Johan Hari, um, some you know much bigger voices than mine out there. But I mean, I've just seen it as a as a firefighter paramedic. I've seen it not work because I pulled the sheets over the bodies over and over and over again. Well, speaking of mental health, let's kind of walk you into to that profession. So, 
Um, you know, was that a profession that you were thinking of entering high school level? And if not, kind of lead me through that journey that, that took you to counseling. Um, I always say, you know, everybody's on a path and people have different um, things placed upon their path. If they're paying attention, that kind of guide them into um, the work that they're supposed to do here in, in this world. Um, when I'm working with students or students in the past, they know that the first thing I always say that when you start in mental health um, and especially the specialty of trauma, it is not something where you choose a career. Like you don't open the career book on career day and say, yeah, I'd like to spend the rest of my life listening to the worst things that's ever happened to a human being. Right. It's more of a calling. And I think um, that is what happened to me. So um, I, Decided I was going to, of course, go to school because I liked school, actually. You know, I was interested in learning so many different things. Narrowing it down was the problem. So I just um, kept narrowing it down to people. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of continuing to study people. But human beings are fascinating and watching them are fascinating and listening to them are fascinating and studying um, their behaviors and things are fascinating. And I think that just continued to narrow my path down to. Um, so what do I want to do, you know, with not just study them? You know, what what do I want to do in terms of like impacting people or, um, you know, communicating with them and um being a part of different people's lives. And that is like, okay, so I have a couple different roads that I can take. Um, I could do psychiatry. I could do psychology. I could do marriage and family. I could do mental health. I can do social work because those are the different areas that cover sort of the mental health scope of, of practice. And I just decided that I was a counselor. Yeah. I decided that, you know, I wanted to work with you on your challenges and I didn't want to do it for you. Like I want to guide you and I'm really interested in seeing how you heal yourself, you know? So it's kind of like the, I want to take you to the river. I want to walk the horse to the river, but I'm not going to make you drink, but I definitely will do everything I can to get you there upon the journey. Um, And then, so that became my calling. Like how many people can I actually walk over to the river so that they can experience and take charge of their own healing. Now we hear, well, I say we, I've heard, and so the audience of, of this podcast have heard many a horror story of especially a responder, soldier, being put in front of the wrong counselor, someone who's not culturally competent. So when did you kind of navigate that path to to realize that you had the background experience to be an asset to that population? So my work in trauma started with brain injuries. And that is definitely a twofold um, experience in starting to work with mental health. So I got to work with people on the physical levels of their injuries and doing community reintegration. So as like after the injury takes place and it's reintegrating them back into their life so they can go home, leave the hospital, that sort of thing. And of course, with that population, what do you run into? You run into a high incident of people who um, were in the military, um, people who um, are policemen. Right. Um, those types of people, people who maybe have those very um, 
daredevil type personalities because they sustained injuries because they were diving or doing something, you know, like that. So I ran into that population through brain injuries. And so it kind of started shaping what my trauma experiences would look like, but it also started shaping the type of populations I got experience with, with working with people and understanding um, and understanding on a different level, because we know that when a person has a brain injury, the person that they are before is not the person that they are after the injury. Um, things do change. And so um, it gave me an opportunity to look at individuals from all these different perspectives and, and, and levels and their families. And so with that, I just happened to start to really target in on certain populations of people. Um, and I think my biggest target was in the brain injury area. Um, by the time I had entered into the field, it was right after 9-11. So some of my individuals who I was working with, I'm mean, like at least three of them, believe it or not, in Florida, um, they were uh, one in particular was at the Pentagon when um, the, the plane. Flew. Really? Yeah. And the brain injury that was sustained from that. So that really sort of like, you know, when a door is open, you have a choice whether or not you want to step in. Well, when that door opened, I just kind of leaped. I was like, yes, I want to learn. And I was there to learn. And that's what I did. I didn't do anything other than listen and observe and learn and get to know people, you know on that level who've experienced these type of things and then now have an injury from it. So with TBIs, because that's something that I think is a double-edged sword in our population. And, and fire, we're not so susceptible to TBIs unless we have you know stuff fall in our head. I think I have more of mine from my combat sports side than I ever did from fire service. But you have sleep deprivation, which is another yeah. the same attack on the myelin sheath and the nerves. And, you know, so... What are you seeing just from um, the TBI element on its own um, with the the mental health or the impact? Because you have people like Junior Sayers and some of these football players yeah. that, you mm-hmm. know, literally donated their brain after their suicide, deliberately shot themselves in the chest so they could study. So we have these, you know, um, contact sports. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, you have these, these soldiers and law enforcement officers. With the TBIs alone, what are you seeing of the impact on their mental health and and the the actual physiology of the brain itself? I think it depends on, uh, one, the area of the injury, because the brain is so complex and so different. It depends upon any core mobilities they may have had before um, the injury. Um, And then one, their personality type, their family. Family supports play a big part in people's individual people's ability to recover and um, sort of sustain a any type of life after a TBI. And then, you know, it it depends on the profession, right? So if I'm working with individuals, whether they're, well, at that time, they wouldn't be active duty. So whether they, you know, were just released on medical or whether or not they are actual veterans, then usually I'm looking at more individuals who maybe um, sustain their injury because of a bombing or something like that. When I'm working with more law enforcement, you know, it usually looks like more of a shooting or more of a physical altercation, like a violent act. Right. Um, and, um, when I'm, when I'm working with, um, I haven't actually haven't worked with a lot of firefighters, um, with, with TBIs. Um, and my firefighter community is a completely unique, 
uh, community in that because most of the work that I've done with that community involves a lot of um, um, substance issues to one, stay awake, but then also to cope with uh, some of the tragedies that they've seen. Yeah. Full of avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So um, with that, one of the other big aha moments for me, because obviously I'm acutely aware of the trauma we see. I saw it myself for 14 years. Um, but was the impact of childhood trauma. The more people I had on the show, the more I realized that some people's childhoods were were great. You know, mine was definitely great. There was some trauma in there, of course, but there were so many inbuilt um, accidental coping mechanisms that, you know, I was very, very fortunate to, to have this base. But, you know, I've had people on the show that, you know, literally were physically abused, sexually abused, I mean, you name it, and they found themselves in police, fire, military. With this population, again, as you've gone through your journey, what have you seen as the impact of childhood trauma before we ever even put on a uniform? Um, you know, the thing about trauma is that um, we can, trauma falls for me, you know, and I can only speak in my experience. Everybody experiences trauma on some level. Um, it happens every day to everyone. Some of us are closer to it. Um, some of us experience it secondhand. Of course, in these helping professions, in these public service professions, we are more susceptible to experiencing it. But trauma itself imprints on the body. The first, your first initial encounter with an incident or a trauma is actually a more of a physical imprint than you're even um, making any psychological type of um um, connections, right? And so because of that, you have people walking around who have layers and layers upon imprints in their bodies from these experiences that they've had in their childhood, which I would say may have even led them to professions of wanting to help other people. Mm-hmm. We see that's very common, Absolutely. like the wounded, you know, the wounded helper wants to, you know, not have anybody else to be wounded. Be the protector. Yeah. And um, it's, still this element of things being unresolved and when things are unresolved you know i always refer to them as you know wounds and wounds need to be attended to they need to be cared for they need to be clean they need to be stitched and when you have open wounds that you never attended to they don't just go away right and so they get infected and so you have like large um, childhood wounds on people walking around and they've never just really stopped to kind of like take care of that area of their life or at least try to resolve it a little bit so that the wound itself can become more of a scar more than sort of this open type of festering situation and I think that that is what takes place with childhood trauma um those imprints, they never got attended to. We just kind of kept surviving. You know, people keep surviving and they move forward and they think that through survival, that means that they have, they're okay. Um, to survive something is not to thrive it. So it doesn't mean that just because you made it through, um, that everything is, you know, a hundred percent and you're okay. Um, it is not possible to go through, um, any type of trauma and it not imprint on you. Now the impact of the imprint is going to be a little different for everybody, but we're human beings. So that first initial freeze response in any type of trauma incident that we encounter is a physical uh, imprint on the body because it is a moment of shock, right? 
we hold our breath. We, it's like a possum um, playing dead or it's like, a, um, you know, deer caught in headlights. That is a physical, actual response to a traumatic situation that you've had, which means that now your nervous system has um, changed. Your nervous system has experienced a moment of dysregulation. You, you can't take that back. Like it has happened. And I think people just don't understand that um to 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 have to experience that means that now there is an element that has now been imprinted in you that's part of your memory part of how you survive that you're going to continue to react to just because you know we're all about survival here as human beings and so you're going to continue to have that and remember it because you want to remember it for next time to make sure you're able to survive yeah mm-hmm. well and i think a misconception that again this is just me as a student um is you know we see this trauma we see that there's you know, vulnerability in, in, in a negative way. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the kind of knee jerk is, oh, so you're saying you shouldn't be a policeman or a firefighter or, you know, whatever. And I think it's, it's the opposite. Once we've addressed that trauma, I feel that we truly do become more resilient and we become a good fit for that profession. But if it's left unaddressed, then that, you know, proverbial bucket is already half full. Um, so what are you seeing as far as, the growth, the post-traumatic growth with people once they've addressed that trauma? I think people experience higher levels of um, compassion. Also, people know how to have boundaries and self-protect. So people are better able to serve other people when they have really good boundaries and self-care um, in how we um, sort of, I like to call, refill our gas tank before we go back out in the world for another trip. And when you really understand the value in taking care of yourself and really acknowledging some of the things that you've been through and trying to work through them and you have those levels of post-traumatic growth, um, it is like having a wound and having a scar. And we know that the scar is there. You know, there's some scar tissue there that's maybe a little tougher than some of the tissue that we've had before. But um, what it does is that, it, you know, it has uh, completely given us an opportunity now to make another choice and decision. And with those choices and decisions, I think we have more knowledge. We have more skills. We have more wisdom based upon our past lived experiences and that impacts you know the the experiences and the the benefits we can have in our future um if we take sort of you know the lemons and try to make lemonade um but even with that if we can't make lemonade if i can just get you to breathe again um you know i know that when you go back out is that you know is that officer or that nurse or um you know is that fireman on the next call i know at least that you you know are ready for your next task in this life absolutely we're talking to breathing and movement and you know holding trauma in the body um when did you start integrating the movement practices the yoga within your counseling so Towards the end of my master's degree um, in counseling, I was really um, looking into um, getting a doctorate, thinking that there's something else that I need in terms of like working with people um, besides just talking to them and some of the other modalities of mental health. I really felt like because of my background in TBIs, that level of trauma and some of the work that was being done with TBIs in terms of just physical therapy and occupational therapy, there's a real strong therapeutic element in making that connection back with the mind and the body, right? And so I needed to, f- to figure out, well, how can that be done 
on a mental health level, because you would think that in mental health, we would understand that there has to be a stronger connection between the mind and the body. And um, so, you know, towards the middle of my doctorate degree, um, I started researching different ways in which that may work. And um, I found yoga for myself. And I thought if this can work for me on these, you know, small stress levels of being in school, um, I know that I can take this so I can study it more um, and um, sort of um, interjected into some of the mental health work that I was doing. And of course, then the more you study psychology, the more you understand some of the ways in which um, these sort of westernized approaches to um, mental health and medicine and all and these things have been taking from um, other types of philosophies and spiritual practices. And so there was a lot of connections already between yoga and the way people um, um, think about mental health. So it was a very easy integration working with trauma. I think um, I don't think that yoga is a cure-all for everybody or everything. I think people are so diverse, they need multiple things. But I think in terms of a good um, modality, a good um, practice that teaches people body awareness, especially in trauma when people can be very disconnected to their body, or they know that they have these physical energetic sort of imprints from the shock and from um, the impact of the trauma. I think that yoga is, um, I haven't found personally, um, a better tool for really bringing about the awareness that people need to get back into their own body. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that I've seen my age group now, I'm in my 40s, is pain is a very, you know, negative mental health element. So for me, I'm, I'm very intimate and you can see there's, there's mats in front of us, but my practice isn't as strict as it should be. But, you know, getting, getting that mobility, getting that, um, you know, sense of your own body, getting the stiffness out. I mean, all these things I think are also another benefit. You know, if you wake up every day and your back hurts, that's not going to be good for your mental health. And the number of people that have seen, you know, it seems to be midlife. They really kind of jump into yoga that, you know, just singing from the rooftops because they feel 10 years younger after doing it too. Absolutely. Because, you know, you need to be able to move, right? Um, functional movement involves flexibility. And if you can't really squat down to pick up your keys off the floor, well, that's going to impact your quality of life. And that's going to impact your, your happiness. That's going to impact your, your feelings of wellness. And so I think that just on a physical level, because of course we know yoga offers, um, more than just the, the physical elements, um, of just movement, but just on a, basic physical level, um, moving and having that functional movement in the body, of course, is going to impact um, how you feel emotionally. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I know one of the things I looked on your, uh, I think it was LinkedIn or, or one of the, the websites, and it said, um, let me quote it, restorative hip hop. Now, I went to drama school in, actually in Wales, years and years and years ago. I am the world's worst actor. But the movement stuff, I seem to resonate with a lot more so the stunts was was a, was my side hustle eventually that i did well in but the hip-hop class i remember just enjoying and you don't really think of you don't really hear of dance being used as counseling and mental health so talk to me about the dance element and some of the healing that you've seen so um in the book that i'm currently writing about trauma sensitive yoga um 
when we think about movement, I actually operate my therapy from what's known as a somatic therapies on a somatic level. So I practice uh, trauma work through um, those somatic experiences that you have in your body. I also believe um, because we need to incorporate elements of what uh, post-traumatic growth looks like. I always believe that, um, you know, once we, we work with your trauma, um, we were working with, um, you creating these new identities after your trauma, um, life is not all bad. And so we have to then find joy. I don't believe we can um, really heal ourselves unless we start incorporating elements of joy into what we do. And um, me incorporating like those levels of dance, one, it was also to be able to work with teenagers, you know, but it was also part of who I am. You know, I'm I'm not someone who is just a yogi who just moves slowly. There are moments where it is very therapeutic to just dance to whatever makes you feel good. And in that, it is another way in which people get reacquainted with different movements for their body and take some of the empowerment back in terms of what they feel like is appropriate for their body and what they want to do, especially with women. Uh, in yoga, it is believed that a lot of the emotional work with people is held in the hips. And I find that um, when women or when people, um, but particularly women, when they take back more elements of being able to move their hips and move their waist um, and, and, and just do those things, it is almost like a liberation in what I actually have control over uh, in my body. And that's very powerful in trauma work because um, trauma happens to people. And so that means that a choice was taken away from you in terms of what you could actually do um, with your body. And then we could have fun. Because at the end of all this very emotional work, you know, where maybe you've cried, you had some bad days, you were depressed, you went through all of the ups and downs of human emotion. I also want to it to be known that trauma work is also can we have some fun? Like, can we enjoy fun again? And that is where all those different dance elements came from. Yeah. So that's interesting to hear because what, what's really shouting at me right now is the Victoria mentality that we have when it comes to bodies so you can watch rambo 57 and you know have watched a thousand vietnamese murdered but god forbid if a nipple shows they'll blur it out you know it's it's insane so you know and, and we have some extremes you know wop is a perfect example but you know the aside from that which i think is a horrible example you know the 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 human body moving the human body the the not fully naked but you know the 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 body in bikini, all this stuff is is kind of frowned upon, you know, no shirt, no no service kind of thing. And, and it's like we've almost gone away from, like you said, just valuing your body, um, investing in your body. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, I think it's important that, that we touch upon like that's also like a very Western sort of also a um, a, a sort of whitewash perspective on like movement because when we look culturally in different areas of the world um, when we look at African dance or even if we look at um, um, you know uh, Polynesian or hula right when we look at those elements it is all you know moving the hips and dancing in those ways is, is very much part of the culture it's very much celebrated and it's not seen um, 
necessarily as a sexual thing as much as it's seen as a um you know a, a part of the a cultural dance and, and a way that celebration happens or the way that um you know respect happens at funerals or memorials you know and so i think that you know sometimes you know we forget that those different things exist you know all over um and we see it in just this perspective but in the work that I do with people, because people are so diverse, I pull in and try my best from, you know, my own background and knowledge to pull in as many different types of perspectives as I can. That's going to be, you know, um, not cultural appropriation, but I try to pull in as much as I can to help people understand that um, it's OK. Yeah. You know, exactly. It's OK. And again, yeah. it's, it's an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, I think we have this puritanical um yeah, element to the i guess the birth of the european element of the u.s you know and and there's some absolute pros but there's some absolute cons and i think that kind of body shaming you know covered from head to toe element i think is very very toxic when you think that we all started probably naked and then maybe a loincloth or something and and now here we are you know like i said you know it's okay to to show a bunch of people murdered on TV or students, you know, tortured, but God forbid you show a breast or the top of an ass cheek and <laughs> you know, it's heresy. And it's always to people's level. You know, you have a choice. And that's the other thing in trauma work is that I want to make it known that everybody always has a choice. So it is not something that is forced upon you. And and like if we're in treatment, it's not something that, um, you know, you have to do, you know, it is just the way in which I practice. So, you know, if we reach a point in my practice where you don't feel comfortable with that, we don't have to do it. But then also I, we we might need to reassess as to whether or not I'm still able to help you or to be your therapist, you know, because you might need something different at this point. Or explore why mm-hmm. you don't feel comfortable with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, yeah. what, what does that go back to? You know, were you shamed as a child? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it does open doors to different um, paths that we can take um, in therapy. And that's important because um, trauma is so different than mental health. Um, it falls under the umbrella of mental health. But um, I think it's important that we recognize that people can be um, traumatized they could be a victim, but it doesn't mean it leads into a mental illness diagnosis, right? Trauma falls under mental health and mental wellness, um, but it, it doesn't mean that you're going to end up with PTSD or or, or, or that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, of acute trauma, um, again, I'm not expecting any HIPAA violations or anything, but you were on a task force that went up to the Capitol building. Um, I've had some friends, I mean, they haven't come on here because there's gag orders and everything, but the, that were there. One friend, you know, was exposed to that. Then they lost a police officer that was murdered, you know, shortly after that as well. Um, I know one of the the elements of that particular department is they felt abandoned, you know. And then yeah. I think the way it was portrayed, and I've, you know, again, I am apolitical. I just, you know, my core is kindness and compassion. Um, but it really felt like it was swept under the rug and almost denied as a thing. Um, and for the humans there that dealt with it, I'm sure that was crushing so what were some of the things that you were seeing when you responded to the people up there so after the insurrection i received a call to go do work at the capitol with the capitol police and so i was up there working with that one police department me and 12 other therapists from around the nation um, for six weeks so we had an opportunity to um, really on a crisis level because we were up there for trauma and just crisis work um, to sort of 
jumpstart the work that they now continue to do by having um, their own trauma specialists that are working just with the department for a long term. And with that, I think some of the biggest challenges at that point was um, one, the environment was still very um, tense. Um, we still had the inauguration that was taking place. So they were still very much um operating within their job, right? And then also um, their trauma because um, they um, not only, you know, just a few weeks before that, um, they had been injured. There was a large part of the um, force that had been injured in that incident. There was uh, people, the, the actual environment was changed. The capital was very much destroyed. Um, some of the things that are seen on, the news, I think, um, at first it's been more slowly released, but there was a lot of destruction. So some of the things that they, where they worked and they valued looked different, right? And then we had started having people like, um, people were in the hospital, people passed away, um, and there was a suicide. So then there were also other incidents of, um, like, um, uh, what do they call it? The memorial, like the officer in waiting where they bring they brought the officer to the Capitol and they had the service. There was all those different elements going on while you're still working with people on a daily basis to kind of check in with them to see where they were um, in processing this. And if there's any further resources or things that I could guide them towards to sort of just keep them going at this point, there wasn't really a level of being able to do any um, really impactful, hardcore therapy when you go in as um, crisis, you're more so um, performing what's known as psychological first aid. You know, I'm there to see if you're stable and to see if I can help you in that moment to lead you towards longer term therapy. Um, those challenges were coming up because these people had a lived experience of that day. Those officers were living um, in that moment and everything that they went through is their truth. And they were being gaslit, you know, gaslighting is a problem in this country right now. And so when you've lived through that experience, you were at the Capitol, you know, or you were taking the calls um, from people calling, asking for reinforcements, um, you know, and then you're being told that that didn't happen to you. That is a huge psychological shift, especially coming from law enforcement, where normally um, when they when they're going through a situation like that and they are calling for reinforcements or they, you know, it's on TV so you can kind of see what's happening. They are believed, you know, um, because it is on camera. So they are believed and they were having a really hard time with with the fact that, um, you know, they could have lived through something um, and then the next day not be believed, um, even though it was right in front of everyone, what exactly was taking place. Um, and that was very, that's very traumatizing. You know, it, it almost can make people feel like that they are, um, going crazy when you're being told, um, that didn't happen to you. You know, you're just, you're just making that up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it's specifically the Capitol Police, but I've just seen this over and over again in agencies all over the world through my lens. I'm, and, you know, and this is definitely my personal experience, my last department, organizational stress to me as a huge contributor to mental health challenges, emotional wellness, because you, you know, you are that person who's out there trying to, trying to be good at your job, training hard and everything. And you're coming against barriers or maybe, you know, you did this amazing job and now your leadership is allowing gaslighting, whatever it is. So what 
element of whether it's the capital, whether it's you know just your entire career so far. What are you seeing as the impact of of uh, uh, environmental stress on the individual? Um, or occupational stress, I guess. You yeah. Say. So you know, honestly, um, one of the more basic things I think that's taking place here in the U.S. People work too many hours. Um, sometimes, especially in public service, the helping profession, people are working too many hours and that really impacts people's ability to make decisions, to make good decisions, to do their job. That's one thing. The other thing is, is that, um, when people want to seek help, um, sometimes they're encouraged not to, um, it's, it's, it's not, um, okay to say I'm having a bad day. You know what I mean? It's, it's taboo to say I go to therapy, you know, it's, um, shunned upon, you know, sometimes when you need, you actually need a sick day to go to your doctor or to have sick time. Um, I think that some, that environmental stress in a toxic work environment definitely impacts, um, the people that are there. And those seem like things that we should be able to, change right it seems like some of those things we should have a little more control over changing absolutely yeah i just have not seen that happen Um, we're encouraged to work harder be stronger suck it up that's a big one you know um uh get over it right um i did it you can do it right um and all of those things just continue to perpetuate these unhealthy behaviors that people will then use to cope or to take out their anger or to not deal with the traumatic stress of the situation that then leads into all these other problems. And it just kind of waves out into your life, you know, um, because of how many hours we actually spend at work. Um, and then all the extra hours we spend on top of that. I think it's just, it's, it's coming to the point where, um, people weren't made and put on this planet just to work. That's not our. That's not our main purpose in life. It's just to have a career. No, no, and I, I've talked about this constantly about the firefighter work week. I mean, the minimum is fifty six, and you know that's if it's even staffed properly. You're normally getting seventy two plus hours, and you throw in COVID, and now you're you know same with our our hospital personnel. Yeah. So as a, a segue to that, you talked about gaslighting. I am a hundred percent behind the choice through mm-hmm. all of this yeah. i'm very opposed to mandates and I, I don't know if you've seen that kind of pop its head up this last few weeks with the first responder professions and vaccines or the medical profession however when we speak of gaslighting i know that my er friends all over the country are seeing all these people dying again most of whom are unvaccinated and again this politics comes in I'm all about choice. But if that's what we're seeing, that's what we should be hearing. That's the message we should be hearing so people can make an informed choice. I just did a episode about a week ago where a friend of mine just laid out everything. And just so that people can be educated in what they choose, and if they choose not to vaccinate, more power to you. At least you understand, you know, the pros and cons and you're going that way. But so what are you seeing? Because I know you're working now with our doctors and nurses in, in this COVID epidemic. What are you seeing with the emotional and mental health of those practitioners having worked for a year and a half in this environment now? Well, you know, um, 
some of the, the work that I've been doing now, crisis related, because it's always what's what's happening at the time, right? In the work, the work that I'm doing now um, has been going into the COVID ICUs and being available for the nurses periodically throughout their shifts. The shift I'm seeing now is that it's almost like it's spreading. So before where I was primarily stationed in the ICUs, lately I've been put in the emergency room departments. And so that tells me that there is there is this this spread that's happening among compassion fatigue and secondary trauma among healthcare. And that I feel like that's very dangerous because, you know, we are the type of people who are there because we want to be there helping. And um, when the fatigue of being compassionate um, with people walking through the door starts to really wear on you, that's scary because when your helpers are no longer no longer able to help, what do you do? The nurses, um, a lot of them feel very powerless. Um, a lot of them are feeling um caught between like a rock and a hard place, um, sort of really wanting the best for the people that are coming in and then being in a hard place because they know that their level of acuity, I guess, walking in the door is now probably beyond help um, because there just isn't as much knowledge about COVID Um that is being communicated to people that isn't misinformation. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of help that you want to take place, but there's a lot of like help that they can't do once you walk, once you make it to the ICU. And the last thing to do is just, you know, incubate you. And um, and then it's that's it. Like there's nothing left there. You know, I think me going in and having worked you know, in medicine before from a different angle um, as a CNA um, and then moving into mental health, going back into the hospital. Now I'm surprised at how quiet everything is in terms of like on these ICU floors, you don't, you only hear machines. There isn't family. Nobody's talking. Like everything is the noise that the machine makes and the noise that the machine makes when people's vitals are low. They're different vitals. There's different signals and, and alarms. alarms that goes off. Yeah. And everything is an alarm and everything is breathe a, a breathing apparatus. And that's really scary. Yeah. No, and that's that's yeah. that's a horrible way for someone to spend their last hours, days, whatever it ends up being. And I think one of the most crushing things that I'm absolutely aware of in myself is the inability to save. I've I've talked about this a lot, but I'm absolute angel of death as a paramedic I mean, <laughs> there's no other way to describe it like you know i have friends that got awards and they had these saves and i never brought anyone back from a cardiac arrest and even though i know it wasn't anything i did wrong and i'm so i'm not struggling with that it just is a fact the shame and the guilt of well i was at school and i played with this mannequin and if i did these drugs and this you know cardiac series then they're going to get up and they're going to give me a hug and then i'll meet their kids and you know, we'll send each other Christmas cards, but they don't prepare you for every time you run a code, the person dies anyway, and you see another grieving family. So I can imagine that being amplified during this COVID epidemic. Absolutely. And that's one of the things too, nurses are really dealing with um, is the grief because, you know, if you, if you, most of the nurses that, that are in these sort of frontline positions, the amount of death that they're experiencing over this sh- 
condensed time, maybe like I really mean maybe what they would have experienced over a 30, 40 year nursing career. And they're getting it in like a year and a half. And that is very traumatic for them because, you know, the first thing that they will say, I went into this job to be able to help people feel better. Like I went in for the outcome of you get up out of that bed and you go home to your family. That's what I felt like I'm here to do. And I feel like the job I'm doing now is a complete shift in the nursing that I was trained for because what I'm really here doing now is just to be here before you pass. Care and comfort, almost like hospice nursing versus like, you know, um, that sort of helping healing type of hands on type of nursing that they were trained for, Um, you know, and then the amount of people they're losing in shifts, you know, I can only um, I've only had experience. I can always speak for the, the, the experiences that I've worked with, with just the individual nurses. Right. And their numbers that they're losing per shift is not anything I've ever heard of or experienced before you know i had one nurse um lose 10 people in one night on one shift had another nurse lose six you know uh, went to one er and they lost um 24 people in 24 hours um and those are numbers right but those are people mm-hmm. like, the church is full of grieving families that is not normal for medicine you don't go work a shift and at the end of your shift have 10 bodies to process and and families to call honestly right because people you know when you start losing people so quickly it's not like you can stop and call in that moment to let their family know right and so that has also been very devastating because then like their calls are getting made at the end of the night you know unfortunately they could have had someone pass away around one or two but because people kept passing away back to back. Now they're stuck in this situation where there's a tremendous amount of guilt, you know, um, and tremendous amount of paperwork, but tremendous amount of guilt because now they're finally able to call. And that's 10 like very emotional calls back to back. And I just really empathize with, with those nurses because the, the amount of grief there is really hurting them. Yeah. Now you got the the lack of human contact too. They're all head to toe in PPE Mm -hmm. and they can't probably touch each other, hug each other, any of that stuff. So even that human emotional contact that we'd normally lean on, maybe on on a outside of fire, you know, when we lost someone, we can't do that now. Well, they can't do that. And the nurses were saying, you know, I don't even know if the patients um, know it, but whenever I, we, we, whenever we hear a code and we're in there, and we know it's she's like, we we always, whether it's me or somebody else, we always stay there and we hold their hand, whether or not they're conscious or not going through that process, because we don't want them to be alone. And I'm just like, you know, like that's that's awful. that's that's awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's the problem is. Again, this is this whole politicizing, this whole gaslighting of this issue, for mm-hmm. example. The first wave, you know, I was disgusted because there wasn't any discussion on the underlying health issues that were killing so many people that COVID was finishing off. And we could have had, you know, 18 months of a much healthier population, you know. But the second wave now, you know, whatever people's choices were this last 18 months, you know, we're seeing this, but it doesn't fit 
certain agendas so that's suppressed you know so again you're back to the capitol building where our doctors and nurses are seeing one thing and it's being denied on the television so you know again we are a giant country of all different areas and i'm sure you know rural wyoming they're not maybe seeing what we're seeing but doesn't negate the fact that in certain areas they are and maybe we don't have to treat the entire country the same way but we have to support the areas where they're really being hit hard Yes. And, you know, from a mental health perspective, my biggest concern is always like the people in front of me and the people that are in front of me are the doctors, the nurses, um, the medical staff. Right. Um, even I, I even even housekeeping, I spoke to housekeeping who goes in and cleans the room up. Right. And those people are devastated. Those are the people who care for us when we are at our sickest and we need the most help. And those people are completely devastated. And those are the people I empathize with um, right now because um, they are the ones that um, we need. You know, we don't we, we need them right now. We, we don't need them to be as devastated um, and it impacting their work the way that it is. Um, that's dangerous for us as a, as a country when our health care is um, getting beat up like that. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure people listening, you know, are intrigued. So they either want to reach out with you, reach out to you from, from afar, or maybe even this area that, that want to connect with you, you know, as a patient. So where, tell me about your, you know, your organization that you formed and how can people reach out to you? So, um, the, the business I have is called the Healing Body Method and we do trauma sensitive, um, retreats. And we also do trainings. So uh, whether it be getting trained in yoga or going away and doing your own personal trauma work, um, we will be offering those again starting uh, next year. It's the healingbodymethod.com. Um, and then the social media handles are all the same. Um, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook is all the healing body method. Um, and in that um that space, it gives me an opportunity to work with groups of people um, and either teach people trauma sensitive yoga methods, if that's something that they want to incorporate into the work that they do, um, because I've worked with many different types of healthcare professionals um, on trauma sensitive methods that they can incorporate into the work that they do. Or if you are someone who is um, dealing with your own um, childhood trauma or own incidents of trauma, and um, I can kind of um, get you away for a week um, and we can do some hardcore um, personal work so that you can have some tools to go home with and continue your own healing journey. Um, that is pretty much what where my focus is right now. Beautiful. You said you were writing a book as well? Yes. Um, I'm writing a book on trauma-sensitive yoga from a somatic uh, perspective, and that should be out sometime um, next year. I just finished a journal that is out on Amazon, and it's called Work the Trauma, and it is a starting place for trauma work. I always, I, I wanted to produce a tool that was like, if you had to start somewhere and you needed some guidance to start somewhere to either start working on your personal trauma or to find a therapist or to just even open up the book and see, you know, what this is about and how it relates to my life that is what that tool is supposed to be and so it is and just a, a guided journal with prompts and information in it about trauma to give you a place to um, process start unpacking things process your, process your thoughts and see like where you want to go from there in terms of your life beautiful mm-hmm. well tasha i could talk for hours more um but uh i have to let you go um 
I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. You kind of dropped everything and, and did this interview almost immediately. But uh, it's amazing to hear someone like you is in our town. So I'm definitely going to be sending you people. Um, but also, you know, your perspective, not only on the, on the connection with the trauma and the yoga, but also the Capitol building and COVID, some very unique, you know, uh, insights that I haven't had on here before. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. No problem. Thank you for having me. 